0: I said last time that over and over again the people of Israel were told that the laws that God gave to them, the statutes and the commandments, and the demand for obedience was something that was for their good always. And that is kind of a recurring phrase in the book, at least in several places. You see in chapter 6 and verse number 24... It says, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. Notice that. It doesn't say to believe all these statutes or to receive these statutes, but to do these statutes. Put it into practice. To fear the Lord our God. Notice this. For our good always, that He might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness, he goes on to say, if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. God wants you to live for him, not just because he wants you to do that, but it's for your good. It's for your good. It's for your benefit. It is always for our good to do what God says. And it's never for our good to do what God says we're not to do. That's the theme that we see recurring in Deuteronomy. This is the message. Now, I have already intimated that there is a central message in this book of divine faithfulness. And there's no question about that. That the Lord is faithful. The Lord is good to his people. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 7 For instance, it says, For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. So they could testify during the time of their wilderness wanderings, which of course was because of their unbelief and their lack of faithfulness to God. Yet, in all of that time, he was faithful to them. He never left them alone. That's something that Nehemiah remarked upon in his book. In Nehemiah chapter 9, there is a whole rehearsal of much that happened in the Pentateuch, in Exodus, and again in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy. I'm not going to go through all of this, but you will see that it says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 12, Moreover thou ledest them in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. And then he describes the giving of the law. He gave them the commandments. Verse 15, He gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst. But what did they do? Verse 16 of Nehemiah 9. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks. And in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious, gracious, And merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Then he goes on to speak of them making the golden calf, the idolatry there. Yet it says in verse 19, Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light, and the way wherein they should go." and it goes on to speak about this over and over and over again. How that the Lord was still faithful to them. Look at verse 31. Nevertheless, after describing all of their backslidings and their sins, Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. And can't we say the same thing? Many a time we've grieved him, as the hymn says, by a thousand falls. But the Lord has never said to you or to me, I'm done with you. That's it. That's it. You're over with. I'm moving on to somebody else. I'm leaving you to yourself. No, the Lord has never said that to his people. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The faithfulness of God. Now let me say that the book of Deuteronomy is easily divided into two parts. There's the first 11 chapters, and then the rest of the book. first Chapters 12 through 34. The first 11 chapters are what we might call retrospective. It's looking back on history. It's rehearsing what the Lord had done. And you find a lot of the detail in the book of Exodus. All about their time in Egypt and the Lord's deliverance of them, His redeeming of His people and so on. It's retrospective. And in view of the transition that was now upon them, the people were to look backward. They were to look to the past to see what the Lord had done. But then they were to look forward and they were to ponder both of these in the sight of God, both their past and their future. And so then the rest of the chapters are all what we would call prospective, looking to the future, the fulfillment of God's promise, entering into the promised land and all that that would entail. So the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 11, we have retrospection and reflection. In the second part of the book, chapters 12 through 34, we have anticipation and admonition. But the core message of God's faithfulness is brought out in both parts of the book, these first 11 and the remaining chapters. We can observe God's gracious, kind, wise and righteous dealings with the nation in the past and his renewed promises to the nation concerning the future. Let me just say to you that the key text for me in the book of Deuteronomy is chapter 6 verse 3. Just look there with me at that verse. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. The main thought here really is obedience. Obedience. The basic truth that is laid down in Deuteronomy is that which is expressed in the 23rd verse of chapter 6. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. He brought us out to bring us in. And that's the experience, that's the testimony of every true believer. We were in the world. We were fast bound in sin and nature's darkness. We were held captive by Satan at his will. But the Lord brought us out. We learned this in Colossians chapter 1, last Lord's Day, when we talked about Him translating us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. I pointed out that that word, that he translated us has a word that has to do with the repatriation of peoples moving them from one location to another that's what the Lord has done for you brother sister, if you're saved he's taken you out of Satan's kingdom, he's transported you into the kingdom of the son of his love he brought you out that he might bring you in into his favour into his fellowship, into his communion. That's the basic truth that's laid down in this entire book. He brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers to fulfill his promises, his covenant promises to the people. Now when we read the book of Numbers, it brings the people of Israel to the border of the land of promise they haven't entered but they're at the border but Deuteronomy is a book that prepares them to enter that land of promise and so the book talks a lot about obedience I want to say some things about the subject of obedience as we see it outlined in Deuteronomy number one, the necessity of obedience this is something that is compulsory the necessity of obedience to God. Look with me at chapter 8 and verse 20 As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, that's if you disobey because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God The law of God must be Obeyed. that's why the Lord gave it to his people it wasn't advice it wasn't you know you can do this if you want to do this it is thou shalt and thou shalt not but notice the progress in the Pentateuch as a whole the Pentateuch of course referring to the five books of Moses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy there's a progress in the Pentateuch Genesis shows us the choice of the people. Remember what happened with Abraham? God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees from from the other side of the flood. He was a pagan. He was no better than anybody else in that land. But God put his hand upon him, set his love upon him from eternity. And brought him out of that place. Just as he has done with all of his people. John 17 speaks of this repeatedly. Them which thou hast given me, who are thine? They are those that God has chosen. Genesis reveals this choice of the people. Exodus reveals the redemption of those people. God had chosen them, and God redeemed them. How did he redeem them? By blood. By the blood of the Lamb I have often pointed out, as others have that when the Lord described the Passover and all that was to take place He always used the singular when speaking of the Lamb Check it out for yourself You'll never find lambs, plural in Exodus chapter 12 It's always a lamb, the lamb, your lamb Always Why? Because there is only one Lamb of God. There is only one Saviour. The one that John the Baptist saw walking along and he stopped and said to the people, Look, behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Look to Him. As the hymn in our book says, If from sin you are longing to be free, look to the Lamb of God. There is but one Lamb. And the people of Israel, though they slew thousands of lambs that night of the Passover it was always described as one lamb, the lamb, your lamb a lamb, a lamb for a house a lamb for a household they took that lamb they set it apart for a period of time they killed it they put its blood into a basin they took a plant called hyssop they dipped it into that basin and they struck it that's the word that's used struck because there's power in the blood they struck the blood on the lintel and the doorpost of every Israelite house. So the death angel flying over would see that blood mark and would pass over the house. The Lord himself would pass over the door so that the death angel could not enter. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. This is what we sing. The Passover speaks of redemption. Redemption. The Lord is spoken of as one who brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand or with a high hand. Millions of them. Perhaps five million people. All brought out in an orderly fashion out of Egypt and led by the Lord. That's the book of Exodus. Leviticus then shows us that same people who were chosen and redeemed, worshipping. The Lord sets up The tabernacle, the sanctuary that he might dwell among them. A place where the work of Christ would be set forth in picture and in type. And that tabernacle travelled everywhere with them. And in that tabernacle there was a pillar which was cloudy by day and was on fire by night. It's referred to as the Shekinah. Which comes from a Hebrew word, shakan, which means to dwell. It's referring to the dwelling place of God. And God tells us in Psalm 80, in the first verse, O thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. That's speaking of God on the mercy seat, inside the Holy of Holies. That mercy seat that was sprinkled with the blood. Thus they had acceptance with God at that mercy seat, just as we have acceptance with God through Christ. But Leviticus shows us the worship of the people. They weren't just to make it up as they went along. They were to do what God said they were to do. He set out their worship for them. The order of it. And then in the book of Numbers we see these same people and their wanderings. We talked about that. Because of their backsliding, because of their disobedience. They didn't make it into the promised land. They were within about 11 days of that land and they wandered for nearly 40 years. Remember what I use as an illustration? The hamster on the wheel. Going round and round and round and going nowhere. That's the children of Israel in the wilderness. That's the believer who gets away from the will of God. That's the believer who's outside of the will of God. He's like a hamster on a wheel. Lots of activity going nowhere. But Numbers leads on to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy highlights the necessity of obedience. And how that God blesses obedience. Now there's a a word, a phrase actually, that's employed on numerous occasions in Deuteronomy. As you read through the book yourself, you can look for this little phrase. You'll find it tons of times. And it's literally this, observe to do. Let me give you a few examples of this. Chapter 5, verse 32. Ye shall observe to do, therefore, as the Lord your God hath commanded you. You're not just to observe it. You're to observe it that you might do it. And now my sermon's going to be interrupted, so we'll just take a time out. The perils of living in the town. Ye shall observe to do. Now go to chapter 6 verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Observe to do. Look at verse 25 of chapter 6. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord. You'll see it over and over and over again. Chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments which I command you this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply, etc. All the way through Deuteronomy, you see this recurring phrase. What does that mean? It means obey. Observe to do. God gives you a commandment. You observe it, you believe it, you practice it. You do something in response to it. Observe to do. It's not enough to have knowledge in your head. It has to translate into the life. What did Jesus say about the wise and the foolish man? We used to sing this a lot with the kids, didn't we? The wise man built his house upon the rock and the rain came tumbling down. The foolish man built his house upon the sand and the rain came tumbling down. What's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? Matthew chapter 7. The closing verses. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. From verse 24. Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. And and What? And doeth them. I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Teaching us that we are to build our lives on the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, See, they both hear, they both have the same privilege, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and what doeth them not? shall so be like unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand, the rain descended, floods came, winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? One doeth his sayings, one doeth them not. That's it. Obedience. That ye may observe to do. Do you ever notice in Scripture that it speaks about the obedience of faith? See, there's a command in the Gospel. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's God's command. He commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So when we repent with evangelical repentance, that is Gospel obedience. And it leads on to a life of obedience. A life of observing to do. Whatsoever he commanded you. Perfectly? No. We wish it were. But nonetheless, when we come to Christ, we enter upon a new life. The necessity of obedience. That's taught in Deuteronomy. But there's also, secondly, the motive to obedience. That which compels it What is it? What is the motive to obedience? Paul wrote to the Romans, The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And that is a principle that follows on into your Christian life. It's the goodness of God to me that makes me want to serve Him. It's not that God is hanging this over my head. If you don't obey me, you're going to hell. Even as a Christian, you're not going to go to hell if you don't obey me. No, that's not what the Lord says. God is our father. Christ is our elder brother. We're saved. But we obey him because we love him. I never obeyed my parents because I was afraid if I didn't obey them they would no longer be my parents. I knew they'd always be my parents. But what would happen if I didn't obey them? there was a breach in the communion there was a breach in the fellowship something comes between us and there's chastisement in my case a little stick that my mother used to take out of the hedge and strip all the leaves off it and you know what happened after that teaching me the necessity of obedience but I never ever thought Wow, I've done something wrong. Now my mom is no longer my mom. I've done something wrong. My dad is no longer my dad. I never ever believed that. Because that's not true. God is the father of all who trust in Christ. And the motive of our obedience is his goodness. Obedience is based on relationship. And relationship in this case is based upon redemption. We're back to that again. Look with me at Romans 12. You have an illustration of what I'm saying. It was true of Israel. It's true of God's people today. If you read the chapters leading up to Romans 12, Paul is explaining the Gospel. He explains the doctrine of sin. He talks about forgiveness of sins. He talks about righteousness, about imputation of righteousness, and so on. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by what? By the threatenings of God? No, by the mercies of God. All that I've just been describing, what the Lord has done for his people, I'm begging you, brethren, on the basis of those mercies, that ye present your bodies, and in this case, it is your entire persons. A living sacrifice. That's different from the Old Testament. When they brought sacrifices, most of them were dead. They killed the animals. People say, well, I'm willing to die for the Lord. Maybe you are, but He wants you to live for Him. He wants you to live for Him. A living sacrifice. Total consecration. He goes on to tell us what that means. Holy. Which really refers to that which is set apart. Acceptable unto God. May not be acceptable to other people, but it's acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The Lord's not asking for something that's beyond the pale, that's not reasonable. And then He says this, And be not conformed to this world. Someone gave a free translation of this as Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. I like that. Do not allow the world to squeeze you into its mould. That's what the world is about making you like them. And that's what a lot of ministers and churches are now conceding to that desire of the world. So that they bring the world into the church. And the church becomes unrecognizable from the world. In every single area, including music. So all week long they're listening to the world's garbage and want to listen to it on Sunday as well. That's what the people want, that's what we'll give them, that's the attitude. And it's destroying the church. It's destroying the church. I don't care what people point to in terms of big overflowing parking lots. I could take you over to Atlantic City. There's overflowing parking lots there too. There's overflowing parking lots down at the old steel stacks in Bethlehem. That's not a casino. There's overflowing parking lots there. Why? Because it entertains the world. And that's what many have gone in for. They've decided we can't beat the world, so we'll join them. Matt Redman. Mercy Me. Shane and Shane. City Alight. Yeah, I know their names. Bunch of garbage. That's what it is. Absolute garbage. People talk about worship. They don't know what they're talking about. You examine that stuff and stack that up against what happened in Scripture. You're pretty stirred up about that passage, yes? I certainly am. There's an event coming up in September, held by people called the Gettys. Yes, the Gettys. People who are from my neck of the woods, from the Irish Presbyterian Church, who have appeared on radio talk shows hosted by Roman Catholics They have an event coming up they have it every year this year it's going to be at the grand old opera of all places and it's called sing You can go to their website and examine it There's the greatest collection of garbage on that website that they're calling worship Come all, everybody. And there's going to be prayers and confessions. What's that all about? Oh, and by the way, we'll have Joel Beakey there preaching. And we'll have John MacArthur there preaching. And we'll have John Piper there preaching. That makes it all good. Be not conformed to this world. That's what's happening today. People are letting the world press them into its mould. But rather than that, he says, but be ye transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, it used to be that in people's unsaved days, they would go to clubs and pubs, taverns and all sorts of places like that, and the kind of garbage they would listen to there, that's what's now being Played in churches as if it were worship that's not being transformed but the motive to obedience to return to that is the goodness of God somebody wrote I will not work my soul to save for that my Lord has done but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear son Why do we serve the Lord? Why do we want to do what's right? Because of his love for us, first and foremost. We love him because he first loved us. And Paul wrote something that we ought to think much about in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us now that is not our love for Christ that's the love of Christ for us that's what Paul is focusing on the love of Christ constraineth us it compels us you know that word constraineth there it's the same word that was used in the gospels of the Lord constraining the disciples to get into the ship to go to the other side of the lake he was more or less pushing them in get in that's what Paul's saying. Oh the love that Jesus had for me to suffer on the cruel tree. That I a ransom soul might be is more than tongue can tell. His love is more than tongue can tell. His love is more than tongue can tell. The love that Jesus had for me is more than tongue can tell and Paul was constrained by that love of Christ to serve him to give his all for him and by the way people often say well I don't want to be an isolationist well I don't necessarily want to be an isolationist either but I'll tell you one thing there are those times when you will feel rather isolated because very few will want to take the stand that you take And the Apostle Paul was one of them. You know what he said at the end of his ministry? This is just before his death. 2 Timothy 4, from verse 16. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. That sounds pretty isolated to me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. See, that's all that matters. If the Lord is with you and if we're with Him, if we're on the Lord's side, sometimes we want to try to prove that God is on our side, that's not the question. Are we on his side? Every question that comes up, am I on God's side of that question? Because if I'm not, I'm in trouble. I want to be constrained to serve him by his love for me. The motive to obedience it's the goodness of God. Let's think about the standard of obedience. What is the standard? What's the standard of obedience? Is it my opinion? Is it the stated position of the free presbyterian church? No, no, it's not. It's the word of God. The shorter catechism, first question. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What's question two? That usually stumps most people. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. In other words, it's the Bible. That's it. That's what we go by. The Bible. This is the rule of faith and practice. One old man of God said, the Bible and the Bible only is the religion of Protestants. And it is. It's the only standard. And yet it's wholly adequate. Now when you come to chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, as we noted last time, there is a call to study it. And there's a call to teach it to our families. And there's a call to obey it. Deuteronomy chapter 6 You have here what's called, first of all, the Shema among the Jews. It's a statement of orthodoxy. And it is simply this. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then it says this. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Jesus said that was the first and great commandment. The second was like unto it. You also find that in Deuteronomy. Which is, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. But notice this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, etc. And verse 6 says this. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. That's the first thing. No point in teaching it to your children if it's not in your own heart. So you need to make sure that you yourself first are in a right relationship to God that these words are in thine own heart and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. They shall be as frontless between thine eyes and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. That's where you get this idea of Christians putting verses of the Bible on the walls of their house. I'm not telling you you have to do that but if you do it, it's scriptural it's scriptural above our dinner table used to sit a saying Christ is the head of this house the unseen guest at every meal the silent listener to every conversation You talk about something that makes you think. And it's true. What is the standard of obedience? It's God's precious word. Look at chapter 4 verse 2 of Deuteronomy. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you. By the way there are three warnings in the Bible. About adding to scripture and taking away from it. Which a lot of people fiddling about with modern translations would do well to consider. The first warning is in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. The next one is in Proverbs 30. And the next one is at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. At the beginning of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, and at the end of the Bible. Three warnings. Here's the first one. You shall not add unto the word which I command you. That does away with the charismatic nonsense of suddenly sitting in the corner, taking notes and saying i have got a word of knowledge from the Lord. They've got an inspired message from somebody. No, they don't. Because the Lord said, You're not to add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it. In other words, you're not to take anything away from it. That ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Here it is the standard of obedience. We have to move quickly and speak about the incentive to obedience. What is the incentive? Well, we're back to the faithfulness of God. That's the bedrock of divine revelation. The Lord was faithful in the past, so he's going to be faithful in the future. Just check out chapter 7, from verse 9 to verse 16. We can't read those verses right now, but you will see what God did for them in the past. You see also in chapter 31, from verse 3 of Deuteronomy, what the Lord said about the future. The Lord thy God, He will go over before thee, and He will destroy these nations from before thee, and thou shalt possess them, and so on. The Lord gives this promise. So there's an incentive to obey the Lord. Now then go back to chapter 11. From verse 26. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. Here you have not just the incentive to obedience, but the alternative to obedience. That's point five. The alternative to obedience. This is my last point. You'll be glad to hear. The alternative to obedience. There shall, verse 26. Behold I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you this day. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. The Lord is basically saying, ye shall obey me and there will be blessing. Ye shall not obey me, there will be no blessing. The Lord's going to administer chastisement if his people are unfaithful. And disobedient. And we, we certainly see that in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28 for example I'm just picking out some examples very quickly here for time Deuteronomy 28 verse 2 and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God you can read all the verses afterwards about the blessings that they will Receive, But you go down to verse 15. Here's the alternative. But it shall come to pass, if I will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do, there it is again, all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then there follows that listing of all the curses. Notice the force of the word if. It's just a little word in English. If. If you'll be blessed, if you don't obey, you're going to find that there's a curse. And as we shall see, the whole Pentateuch is foundational to the message of the entire Bible. I'm going to be looking at some historical, typical and theological themes in a coming message. It's foundational to the message of the entire Bible. I hope you can see this. Things that we bring out of Deuteronomy are found right throughout the Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy as a book is quoted altogether 90 times in the New Testament. Did you know that? 90 times. And the importance of the book of Deuteronomy is highlighted by the fact that all three scriptures that Jesus referenced in Matthew chapter 4 in his temptations by the devil when he said, Three times over it is written, do you know that all three of those are taken from Deuteronomy? We read one or two of them today. For example, in Deuteronomy and the chapter number eight and verse three, at the end of the verse, he says, That he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Where do you read that? You read that in the words of Christ. In Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It's from Deuteronomy. The Lord quoted from Deuteronomy then in the second instance, in chapter 6 and verse 16. ye shall not tempt the Lord your God. Remember we said that to the devil? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's from Deuteronomy. And the third one as well is found in Deuteronomy. Chapter 6 verse 13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. It's referring to worship. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. That's from Deuteronomy. Isn't it interesting that of all the books in the Old Testament that have been attacked by higher critics, that Deuteronomy's top of the list. There's a great book written by Oswald T. Alice, a couple of books actually on the, on the Pentateuch, majoring particularly on Deuteronomy, where the Mosaic authorship of the book is highlighted and endorsed by him but he points out that German rationalists and modernists in the 19th century focused their attack upon the book of Deuteronomy that's not by accident you know the devil doesn't want God to receive all the worship he wants us to worship saints idols and other things You go to every false religion in the world. Hinduism. Buddhism. They have their God's shelves. Gods of wood and stone. And they'll tell you, well, they just are aids to worship. No, they're not. They're forbidden by God. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. Now this great fundamental pronouncement of Christ in Mark chapter 12, where he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and so on. He said it was the first commandment of the law. And so it is. The question is, do we love the Lord our God? Do we seek to obey the Lord our God? Just as I finish, let me say that the Pentateuch has one purpose. It is a complete, as well as a connected account of the origin and the development of, of divine redemption, of divine religion in the world. None of the books is complete in itself. You shouldn't just study Genesis on its own or Numbers on its own. They all belong together because none of them are free from reference to the others. They're all interconnected. And all the later books of the Bible either imply the existence of or definitely specifically refer to the Pentateuch. So it is a really important part of the scripture. And may God continue to bless us as we study its teaching together.